We're making a new Guardian podcast to keep you up to date during the federal election campaign. It's called Campaign Catch-Up and it's hosted by me, Jane Lee, together with Catherine Murphy and the rest of the politics team at Guardian Australia. Each day you'll hear the top stories and analysis from the team on what it all means. Even if people think you're a really nasty piece of work, you won't care if your objective is served. We seem to be having these problems repeatedly and there doesn't seem to be any lessons learnt from when we've previously been unprepared. It'll be out at 4pm every day of the campaign. Hear it on Full Story or search for Campaign Catch-Up wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. At the last election, Bill Shorten pitched the Australian public big ideas. Progressive policies on tax and on climate spearheaded Labor's campaign. Policies that were vigorously attacked by the government. But as a federal election once again approaches, it seems Labor and Anthony Albanese have changed course making themselves a smaller target, with fewer policies and public appearances. So as voters go to the polls amid a backdrop of crises, COVID, climate and war, is either party doing enough to win the hearts and minds of voters? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about whether we're in for political campaigns that fit the times or politics as usual. It's Friday, the 8th of April. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. We're days away from an election being called, and yet it seems we still don't know all that much about Labor's policy offering. People are saying they don't know who Anthony Albanese is. Obviously, Lenore, this is a very different strategy that Labor went to the last election with. How do oppositions weigh up whether to be a big or small target? Yeah, look, this is a perennial question for oppositions. You know, some voters, certainly some commentators say they want vision, you know, they want big ideas, they want inspiration that, you know, persuades them or convinces them of the case to change a government. And then, you know, the strategists come in and they're the people running the focus groups and the tracking polls, and they point out that big visions can be off-putting or frightening, and also they can be quite easily weaponised by a government who's trying to make the case that change is risky or ill-advised. And often the thing looming largest in an opposition's mind is the previous election, the one they've just lost. And in this case, that was the election where Bill Shorten presented voters with a lot of big ideas. Mm. And then one of the things mentioned in the post-mortem of that unexpected loss by Labor was that there were too many big ideas. So that much of the big vision small target debate is as it always was, like a choice, a tension that oppositions always face. But I do think in this election there are two additional factors which are sort of fascinating because they pull in opposite directions. On the one hand, this term of government has been like one long disaster, bushfires, floods, pandemics, recession, et cetera, et cetera. And every commentator with the pulse is telling us voters are exhausted and fed up and pissed off. And that is undoubtedly true. And maybe that means voters do want reassurance. They want a bit of what we might have once called normal. 
They want help with cost of living and services that work and they don't want gains and they don't want rhetoric and they want the election over and done with and they just want to choose whoever might be best to help them get back to some semblance of their former life. But on the other hand, anyone paying attention at the moment can surely see that things can't possibly go back to normal. You know, we're living Mm. through this turning point in history where all of the crises that have been building up over decades are all cresting and kind of intersecting with one another. And a couple of bucks to help with the cost of living in Australia in the short term seems to be a pretty sort of poor answer to that. You know, we know the frequency of the floods in some parts of the country and the intensity of the fires is being fueled by global heating. We know that the geopolitical tensions that we've seen building are just, you know, have come to kind of crisis point in Ukraine. We know that both of those crises feed and fuel one another. And so I guess my question is whether the reality of the disasters we've faced and the horrific, unthinkable things we're seeing from Ukraine, whether people might look at that and say, actually, we do need a leader who has a bigger vision because these challenges are really big. So I guess that's what's been preoccupying me. Like Anthony Albanese is running a fairly small target strategy. That is what he's being clearly being advised to do. And the open question, the thing I'm grappling with is focusing on those domestic issues and reassuring them the best way to make a case for change, or does he really need to articulate a bigger vision given the times that we live in? Mike, is their failure at the last election the only thing weighing on Labor's mind this time round? I think if they are, particularly on the Labor side, if they're looking back over more elections before that, we can remember how Tony Abbott tore down the carbon price very effectively in 2013 and before that how John Howard ran very successfully on fears about refugees and and asylum seekers in the early 2000s, which, although he was in power then, sort of had the characteristics of a negative campaign, a fear campaign about what Labor might do if they won the election. And when they won under Rudd, although he talked about climate change as the greatest moral challenge of our times, it was otherwise a relatively small target campaign, I think, Mm -hmm. um, on, on economics particularly. So... I think it's understandable that Labor are thinking like this, that the way to win an election is to keep things pretty small. But yeah, as Lenore said, we're in extraordinary times and they are hard to knit together. It's hard to come up with a sort of overarching sell on what you are going to do about China and the pandemic and Ukraine and floods and climate change and not to mention half a dozen other issues that we haven't mentioned, you know, voice to parliament, housing affordability, all kinds of very pressing issues that will concern various parts of the electorate. It's really hard to come up with a way to frame all those in one way, but I agree. It would be fascinating to see a leader try to do that in a slightly more ambitious way than Albanese has done so far. I thought I thought it was interesting that um, Cameron Milner, who's a former Queensland Labor State Secretary and uh, was Bill Shorten's Chief of Staff for a while, is now a lobbyist, it must be said, also for Adani for quite a while. Anyway, he wrote an opinion piece in The Australian this morning where he was making the case for a slightly bigger target strategy. You know, he was saying the big problem for small target strategies advocate 
advocated by some within Labor is the void of trust that is allowed to develop for voters and that that void can be exploited by a Liberal campaign machine, which is really good at projecting onto Labor the fear of the unknown. Mm. I think it's an interesting argument. I mean, I I could sort of hear Labor people spitting Wheaties around the country this morning and thinking, uh, talking about, you know, how well big target strategies work for Bill Shorten. But nevertheless, I thought he made a really interesting case in that piece. Perhaps there's this way of going around the question slightly and reframing it rather than just big versus small. Yeah. I think one thing they're looking for is just sheer competence. They want a government Mm -hmm. that works. We've seen that particularly in the response to the floods recently and also the bushfires before that and the pandemic. They just want things that work. And if there's a way to project that in a calm and measured way, that doesn't necessarily involve Mm -hmm. making huge promises or indulging in soaring rhetoric. But if you can project just, we will stop messing about with internal party politics. You won't hear about branch stacking and factions and all that sort of inside camp. Which nirvana are you living in there, mate? I was about to say, this sounds pretty much like the opposite of what we're seeing Again, I don't know how they do this, but if they can project that somehow, I think that would be something that voters would respond to. I agree. Is campaigning different for incumbent governments? Like, do they have to put up big vision strategies like the opposition or do they assume that voters know what they stand for? I mean, we keep hearing about a car key election. Is national security their sell? So I think they're trying to sell themselves in two ways, as better economic managers and as being better to handle national security. That is what they see their winning points are in the election. If we look at the national security point first, they did start this election season prosecuting national security in a very almost cartoonish way. You know, Anthony Albanese was the Manchurian candidate. I had thought that we had kind of moved on from that a bit until I read a story this week about large trucks with advertisements on the side of them driving around cities across Australia showing Chinese President Xi Jinping voting with a ballot that said Labor won alongside the words CCP says vote Labor and they were paid for by the conservative lobby group Advance Australia. So maybe we haven't moved on from the cartoon phase, I'm not sure. However, we are still getting a lot more talk from the government to try to maximise what are really pretty minimal differences between the parties on national security and defence, rather than the kind of more open, more nuanced, more thoughtful discussion about the difficult times we live in, which are clearly more difficult than any point since World War II. We keep getting told that the government wants a khaki election, although I guess the polls are a little bit less clear about whether that is actually as much of a benefit to them as they might assume that it is. But in any event, if you get down to it, to what they're actually saying that they would do, the differences between the parties on national security and defence are less evident. They have fairly similar um, policies on spending, on recruiting more ADF personnel, on AUKUS. This sort of runs slightly counter to what I was arguing before, but if you actually really look at the speeches that Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong have been giving, they are quietly sort of trying to outline a slightly more responsible vision. They're not they're not shouting it from the rooftops, but it's kind of there when you look. I mean, Scott Morrison gave that speech about the arc of autocracy, etc. Penny Wong is sort of trying to, and Anthony Albanese in his lowest speech, are trying to make the point that we really need to think about the link between national security and democratic institutions 
and this threat of modern authoritarianism. When Catherine Murphy asked Penny Wong on our sister podcast, Australian Politics, what she'd do differently if she became foreign minister, Wong said she wouldn't allow foreign policy to be driven by domestic political matters and domestic political interests. So I think the thing about national security, just to take that part of your question, is that Labor's not going out there and selling it as a vision, but they are subtly differentiating themselves in terms of thoughtfulness and intent, whereas the government is trying to differentiate themselves in in a much less nuanced, more more politicised way. I'm not 100% sure that how much traction the national security will make in the electorate. It feels mm. to me like a lot of people are very much focused on their very immediate circumstances, as they usually are, on their, their economic circumstances, on the crisis in some parts of the country caused by floods and so on. I also wonder if people know what CCP stands for these days, <laughs> if they just see it on the side of a truck. I don't but know. But there was a hammer and sickle and it was right. painted oh, red. Okay. Like, well, that so, pro- probably yeah. did help, but, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> People are worried about China, but are they worried enough that it makes a difference to their vote? I'm not so sure. Well, obviously, Mike, you mentioned floods. We had IPCC report out this week. The climate crisis is obviously a huge global issue. How are the parties or are the parties responding to this challenge, Lenore? Well, you know, as you say, we had the IPCC report. It was clearer than every report before it. We are on track for catastrophic three degrees of global heating in a world where at least half the population is extremely vulnerable to that outcome. And the consequences of that outcome will feed into all of the other disruption, economic and geopolitical and migration and everything else that we're seeing playing out. And against that backdrop, where the IPCC is saying really clearly we have to phase out the use of coal. The Resources Minister in Australia, Keith Pitt, is saying the coalition wants the coal industry to expand and we're continuing to subsidise new fossil fuel exploration and new fossil fuel developments. It's like we're having the same old arguments as if nothing is happening and to the extent that we have changed domestic policy, it's only as much as they have to, to kind of walk both sides of the street. I mean, there is a shift, and we've discussed this before, there is a shift, but there is still a mighty gap and a kind of disconnect between reading the IPCC report and then listening to Keith Pitt say, yes, you know, we want to expand the coal industry for as long as we possibly can. I mean, with all these somewhat disparate but also connected questions, the task for all the political parties is to sort of switch from crisis management from responding, you know, from firefighting, literally in some cases, to putting out a more proactive, you know, more forward-looking, optimistic vision, as we've talked about. And I think there are real opportunities here for Labor to do that now on climate change that there weren't in some previous elections. Mm. Obviously, the fact that the coalition has moved at least in its rhetoric to adopting net zero, a net zero target, but also in the way things have changed in the economy. We've seen, we ran a story recently about the number of people who'd signed up, at least as an expression of interest, to buy an electric vehicle when Hyundai announced they were bringing a particular model to Australia. There were 109 cars and 18,000 people signed up as mm. hoping to buy one. There's a lot of demand there that 
you know, they need to push at some open doors on on climate, on on energy and policy. Mm. I think solar panels is another one. We've seen a huge shift, driven mostly by the states and also by individual consumers on that over the past years. There are there are some real parts of that debate. Not all of them. Like obviously, shutting down the coal industry is a much tougher ask. But there are some places where the public is really ahead of the parties now. And to be fair to Labor, their climate policy is more ambitious, much more ambitious than the coalitions. They have a clearer vision of how they might get there. It's not like they're advocating nothing. I guess my point was just compared with where this debate is in other parts of the world, we do seem to still be lagging. So if we know there are all these indications that readers care about these things, not just readers but voters care about these things, why are the parties so slow to respond? Well, I think with from, in Labor's case it's just because they've been burnt so often in the past by, by the climate debate. They suffered in Queensland, at the, particularly at the last election, um, with the campaign around coal and the, you know, the Adani convoy and all, all, everything that people will remember from that. And also they're worried about the Hunter in New South Wales in particular. On the local level, they're worried about certain seats and more broadly, they're just worried in general that climate has been an election loser for them in the past. But I do think circumstances have changed this time and it'd be interesting to see how far they feel they can go. And I don't think the parties are wrong in their assessment that cost of living is the most live political issue for a lot of voters. I mean, Mm. it is the thing that everyone's talking about. That is why the budget was framed the way that it was. And I suspect it will be the major focus in the election campaign. I think probably services will feature large as well, I would imagine. You know, um, Anthony Albanese made aged care the focus of his budget speech in reply. But I would assume that we would have to see some discussion and promises around health and hospital spending, given what we've just been through and the obvious strain that it put on our systems. So that has to be part of the major parties' campaign is just how they build a broader, bigger set of ideas around it. So how are people responding to this, Lenore? Well, one question is whether the absence of a lot of sort of vision or big picture thinking and that sense that Mike was talking about, that it's the same old campaign game and the same old promise, whether that is fueling disaffection with the major parties. I think in our last Guardian Essential poll, there was almost a quarter of the electorate saying they wouldn't vote for a major party. There was, you know, the Greens were on 10% and Independents and others on 5 and there was UAP and Pauline Hanson. So I think it is interesting that the more politics as usual is played, the more we kiss babies and hand out, you know, grants in marginal electorates, the more you get into that cycle of of feeding disaffection. And in this election, I think that is putting probably more pressure on the government than Labor. I mean, Labor always comes under pressure in some seats from the Greens, but as we've discussed before, the government is under pressure from the Teal Independence in the centre and also on its right flank. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, the picture we're seeing from polling and from reporters on the ground is that there is a disaffection with Scott Morrison and a disaffection with politics as well and a sense that Anthony Albanese hasn't quite yet convinced people, he hasn't yet sealed the case for change. And I guess, you know, the thing that I've been thinking about is whether in these times a small target strategy is the best way for Labor to persuade people or not. Mm, I think there's a real hunger for a different kind of politics. People want 
to see politics done differently. They hate the shouting matches in question time. They hate the negative campaigning. They hate internal party brawling. They want people to just kind of behave a bit, <laughs> behave a bit better. On budget night, which now seems a century ago, <laughs> both you, Lenore, and Catherine Murphy, our political editor, talked about this election being up for grabs if someone could stand up to the times and create a vision. Is that still how you're thinking and do you think either party is up to it? It is still how I'm thinking. If you're looking at it through Anthony Albanese's eyes, I think he needs to step up in this campaign and make a case for change and convince people. And I don't think that he has quite done that yet. Certainly all of the instability in the Liberal Party and all of the free character assessments that his own colleagues are giving Scott Morrison make it easier for Labor to try and present themselves as the steady, capable people who could, you know, run the show better. But I do still think that they can't assume victory and it will depend on how Albanese and Labor perform over the next month or so. Next, earbuds and ibises. And now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Who wants to go first? Who's got the best one? I can go first. (laughs) Okay, go, Lenore. Mine is obviously the story about a study saying that people who listen to podcasts (laughs) are more likely to be curious, more open to experience and less neurotic on average than non-listeners. I mean, we all know that's right, don't we? We do. We do. (laughs) You're smart listeners. (laughs) Mike, what can you not get out of your head? Well, Being in Sydney currently, uh, the only thing that anyone cannot get out of their head is the relentless, depressing, miserable rain. So my story is the uh, the only one around the rain that had any kind of positive uh, angle to it. And we did rack our bangs in news conference, right, trying to find (laughs) a positive news news story on rain. And this was that uh, the much maligned... Australian white ibis, which is extremely common in Sydney, uh, and people disparage it as, a, as the bin chicken, which it, it has learned very cleverly to adapt to the way the, that uh, humans have taken over its its traditional, you know, it's a wetland bird. We've built all over its wetland, so it adapted to eating out of our bins and well done to it for that. But in the rain, it's recolonised the parks and playing fields of <laughs> Sydney, which are unusable for other pe- for people, and is looking really white and spruce. There are whole flocks of them gathering across all, all the parks. And they're having a good time too, aren't they? They are very happy. They're having a good time. They're looking good. And I'll just, yeah, that's, that's the one piece of good news out of all this rain. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that Ibises are happy, at least. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for today. The podcast was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then.